This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News. Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. 5 o'clock Saturday means it's time to check in on our appetites. I'm Andre Pru. I'm joined by Maroki Tong. And uh, it's Earth Day. It is Earth Day. Woo! You, you really are into this thing, hey? I mean, I am a complete self-professed tree hugger. I definitely will say that all those lessons in school that taught about taught us about the three R's and, you know, hu- like hugging our mother earth and doing good for the environment um, translated like into a zealousness to for sustainability as an adult. You know, uh, sustainability is something I've always really cared about, especially being close to the the wine industry. You know, it's one of these things where when you visit a lot of wineries where the cornerstone of what they're doing is sustainability, for the most part, I'm not going to say 100%, but for the most part, you find the quality of the product a little bit better, especially when you're comparing craft wines to factory wines. But that's me uh, throwing the snob factor in a little early on the show. <laughs> well, and I think there has been criticism about things like greenwashing over the years. And I do believe that there is a standard that we must upkeep. But sometimes the most simple ways is to perhaps eat more of our own local produce. And, oh, that's a great um, segue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, eat a little more of our local, eat, like eat a little bit more of our local produce and don't, you know, consume as much, don't waste so much. And, you know, I grew up in the country. So, Purchasing from a little farm stand has been something that has been an integral part of my life. You know what? It's the same thing for me as well. And it's my favorite thing about this time of year in particular. Like, I love that it's in around Earth Day. I love that we've had a little bit of a blast of early summer that has kind of kickstarted the local produce scene. But I mean, this is a time of year where um, we talk, we've talked about seasonal drinking a lot, like whether you go from red to white wines or dark beers to light beers, depending on the season. I am 100% a seasonal cooker. And I know you've said many times on the show that you're not a, a big chef in the kitchen. But I mean, it's something that um, I think we have a whole generation have taken for granted that if you want a watermelon, you can get a watermelon year round and just not pay attention to what's on the sticker. And it could be from California. It could be from Mexico. It could be from wherever. Where, you know, it's like you said, eating local, I don't think is just a matter of saving a few dollars. I don't think it's just a matter of uh, supporting local for the sake of supporting local. But there's just something about getting that first batch of fresh produce in the spring. Oh, I think you're absolutely correct on that. And I, you know, not that I'm a scientist or anything, but it makes sense. If you have product that's shipped from abroad, uh, you know, they have to spray it with some sort of preservative in order to for it to stay fresh. I actually, so I, you know, I used to, I worked in a a health food store for a hot spell in Mm. my youth. And I remember once the grocery section received a shipment of bananas and half of it was yellow Mm -hmm. and the other half was green. And it was kind of like splotchy in the middle. Mm. And I asked them about it and they said, well, what they have to do is when they're shipping the bananas up, um, because we don't grow bananas locally here, they have to spray it with a preserve that ho- keeps it green so that when it arrives in Canada and put on the sh- shelves here, they will turn yellow over like, you know, it basically delays the fact, uh, del- delays the process. And in this moment, they had sprayed it wrong so you could see the splotchiness. So if you think about that, you know, you're thinking about the preservatives that you are consuming and not to get on my soapbox about that. I'm, I, but it just you just think about, OK, that th- that product has left the trees and basically sat on a boat for weeks and weeks. The freshness is going to go down no matter how hard you try to preserve it. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I think my favorite thing is 
Okay, to, I think tomatoes are one of those vegetables where it's difficult to not eat it year round, like especially if you are big into salads in the winter. But you you notice a clear line in the sand the moment that those tomatoes start getting shipped in from Mexico versus what you get from from Canada, from Ontario in particular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, is there any particular fruits and veg that you're <laughs> looking like looking forward to for the spring? Because I okay. I will fully admit I'm not good at the seas- seasonal for spring and summer. I do have memories of harvest around fall. Yes. Um. You know that's usually when I'm grabbing some tomatoes late summer the peppers the apples are coming in but i actually cannot tell you outside of knowing that the pile of seedlings are being grown right now (laughs) what is harvestable in the spring and early summer oh my god i'm a big fan of apples but like i think it's just that by the time april rolls around i'm sick of apples potatoes and cabbage and i just need something green and you know i love that the whole foraging movement uh you know especially if you're eating at any of the great restaurants in in downtown toronto um i think the foraging movement is more than a trend at this point, like it's definitely become a part of the fabric of eating out. Um, and I know a lot of the chefs that I've been talking to are like chomping at the bit to get out into the forest to grab some ramps. Have you ever had ramps? I think I have. Um, not cooked at home though, but I will certainly say if I've seen it, like I've ordered it on a dish in a restaurant. But okay. you know what? Refresh refresh my memory for what it is. Yeah. It's, so a ramp is like a Canadian wild leek. They're very small. They've got like big, long green leaves. They've got a little bit of a look like a green onion, but they're very mild, but super delicious. Um, I was really lucky to have uh, one of my chef friends gift me like a, a grocery bag, like, you know, a no frills bag full of ramps. And it's just like when you get fresh produce, you want to make sure you use it before it goes bad. It's just like, what the hell am I going to do with this massive bag of ramps? Uh, I turned it into kimchi. Ooh. And it was so delicious because it wasn't too powerful. You know, it had that tangy with the fish sauce. I kept it in the fridge and it took me about two months to eat it because it was such a massive bag of of these greens. And it just got funkier and funkier while not letting the produce go to waste. Um, I love that. Another one of my favorites. Have you ever had fiddleheads? I have had fiddleheads. And... um... Usually it's just sort of like steamed and sautéed. I think I I think the last time I had it was in a breakfast omelet out oh, of all Oh, interesting. Things. You know, yeah. fiddle, fiddleheads are something I used to buy very religiously, but then it just got to the point where I realized that I was eating them and I it was what I what I said earlier about supporting local for the sake of supporting local. I could never find a way to make them super delicious. I've tried pickling them. I I find like them very green, but it's almost to the point where I I don't know, maybe I'm just having flashbacks of being forced to cut my parents lawn as a teenager and it's just like <laughs> i find they they taste a little like the smell of lawn clippings which is not necessarily a bad thing like to me that's also a smell of summer like fresh cut grass and when we talk about certain wines like that's not necessarily a bad thing um mm-hmm. but, i think when they've been served to me they've been salted okay. um and usually seasoned which helps remove that greenness but actually i would more ask on tips on how to clean them properly because one thing i will say it's fiddleheads because they're so curly yeah often seem to carry a lot of grit in it and i never successfully am able to remove it myself which is probably my own hesitancy for buying them yeah i mean you've just got to soak them soak them in some water for a little while and you definitely have to make sure that you cook them because they are a bit toxic so make sure you steam them and boil them properly <laughs> uh i've moved off fiddleheads though where like for me spring has truly kicked in when it's asparagus season i love making a good niçoise salad in my house and like for those of you who don't know niçoise salad the the foundation of it is 
potatoes and green beans so it, it does tend to jive more with fall but if you sub sub out your green beans with asparagus you kind of get that beautiful segue of like the last of your winter potatoes and the first you know green veggies of spring i love how people say like if you see asparagus growing it looks like someone's playing a joke on you <laughs> on how asparagus has grown because it literally just looks like stalks of like the sink like each asparagus stalk just sticking out of the dirt Oh, I still remember that I was visiting a winery in California called Benziger that focuses on uh, biodynamics and sustainability, which is why I'm giving them the, the the cheap shout out in this. But they showed me this beautiful plant that they had. And it's like, this is asparagus. And it's just like, no, it's not. Like, it's this big leafy thing. Where are my little stalks that make my pee smell funny? It's just like, no, this is what happens to asparagus when you let it grow. <laughs> I, I like how you had to bring on uh bring on that little little bit of TMI, Andre, about what happens <laughs> when you eat asparagus on the other well, end we of all your know digestive what it, system. Hey, we all know what, what asparagus <laughs> does to us. All right. So coming up after the break, we're gonna dive right into this whole Earth Day. Uh we're talking a lot about sustainability today. And you've found for us a really great supermarket, really great interview coming up. What are we doing next segment, Roki? Yeah, we're going to chat with the co-owner of Unbox Market on Dundas Street West in Toronto, Michelle Gentner, and about all the cool things they're selling at basically a grocery store, but with zero waste in terms of packaging and refillables, everything from, you know, the, the beans, the produce, but also cool things like sunscreen and toothpaste. Sunscreen and toothpaste. I can't wait to hear this. This is your Earth Day on Tasting Together, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Andre Pru, did you know that today is Earth Day? Maroki Tong, I did know that today was Earth Day. Do you ever feel like on this day that you like need to do extra good for our planet? Um, I know it's something that I speak about on the regular, but I feel like if I don't do something good for the environment today, I am an extra bad human being. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's just one of those things where I think anyone who's listened to uh, this show for any length of time knows that um, sustainability is a big part of what I look for when it comes to both food and drink. So I try to be fairly sustainable year round um you know make sure i use i'm using my green belt green bin uh i plan my meals pretty religiously as you know to try to minimize any sort of waste that comes out of my kitchen but um yeah i mean there's i it, i'm always excited and looking forward to seeing what's next because even though i do as much as i think i can i like to learn about ways to do better Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the things that have really started bothering me in the last while is just seeing how much um, uh, like packaging waste there is on the market. And so I've been trying to find new ways of purchasing my goods in a way that does not, um, you know, have that kind of waste. And so I'm super excited to bring in Michelle Gentner, who's the co-owner of Unboxed in Toronto. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. I so let's dive right into it. Why don't we just ask you straight up, what is Unboxed Market? Yeah, so Unboxed Market is a grocery store, all-in-one grocery store that is designed specifically to minimize any kind of excess waste or single-use plastic packaging wherever possible. I love that. You said full grocery store, so what all can I, can I get everything? Like, what's, what all do you carry at a grocery store? Yeah, so you can you can get everything that you should need um, 
I, I mean, bearing some exceptions of things that we so far haven't been able to get, but we are a pretty all encompassing grocery store. We have a full um, produce wall that is about 30 feet long. We have a full butcher counter, cheese and deli counter. Um, we have obviously dry goods. So things like rices and cereals, lentils, beans, those kinds of things. Um, there are some pretty unique items that we have that you don't find in your traditional grocery store. So for example, we have milk and maple syrup on top. Um, mm. We have laundry detergents on top. We have oils and balsamics. Um, we can refill deodorant, toothpaste, sunscreen. There's, there's all sorts of everything that you would find in a regular grocery store. So I love that you brought up toothpaste on tap or refillable toothpaste because that, that's one of the pieces of packaging that I used to angst about. Um, <laughs> you know, I am that person that will sit there and like squish my toothpaste and then there's absolutely nothing left inside. And then afterwards, I just stare at the package in, in dismay and wonder what the heck can I do with it because it's yeah. not recyclable. I know another one that really started bothering me in the last couple of years is laminated plastic because everyone thinks, oh, you can just recycle a Ziploc bag. No, the ones that, you know, are hard like a shell and you can stand up, you can't recycle them. So I was extremely devastated. And so, you know, our, I think, you know, to our listeners who may not realize just how much waste exists, can you share just how much of an impact people could have if they made more conscientious decisions when it comes to shopping waste-free? Yeah, for sure. We actually have some customers who have come back to us with feedback uh, as they've progressed into reducing their waste in their own homes. And one family right at the beginning when we opened came and said you know we were a family that filled two of the large city of toronto bins you guys know the ones i'm talking about like you can get different sizes they had the large ones and they said we filled two of the large ones every time there was a curbside pickup and now we've reduced to one of the small ones and this was a family of six um and just by shopping in our store and not solely getting things from our store this is the other thing we have a lot of people who will do different levels of shopping depending on you know dietary restrictions or um different different requirements that they have for kids in school for allergens and stuff so they're still generating some waste but if you think about something like the size of a laundry container and if you don't have to get rid of one of those every few months that is an immediate impact if you can just keep reusing that laundry container um you were talking about the stand-up pouches if you think about you know, you go to the movie theater and you get those stand-up pouches of um, chocolate-covered peanuts, for example. You can refill those at our store and then you never have to get another one of those stand-up packages. You know, like there's so many little things that you can do that have an immediate impact on, on everything that you put out into the world. You know, I love what you, like, you, you've given kind of a few tips there where to come because the thing is, um, I... I'm big at reusing containers at home. I do a lot of canning. So like I kind of have an, an idea of, of what a reusable container is in my house. If you're new to setting foot in unboxed, what do I need? Like what kind of container should I bring? Like I love the fact that you're doing milk on tap. What, mm -hmm. what would you recommend? Like do, do you give advice to customers on what to bring so that their milk lasts as long as it can and that they're using a good reusable container? Like I know this is a big, big question, but um, you know, just where to start? Yeah, um, the, uh, that's that's a whole lot of a question. Um, <laughs> we definitely give uh, information and examples to our customers every single day. It's a huge part of, of our conversations in talking to people when they first come into the store. The, the first thing I would recommend is look at what you have 
anything that is clean and able to close, you can bring it in and weigh it for you and you can fill it up. And then we take off that weight. It's called tearing and charge you for what's inside. Um, for example, you could reuse a glass container. Mason jars work well. Um, anything, I would suggest glass for milk just because it's strong and stable. Um, anything that you can really sanitize and get really clean, making sure that if you are using a glass jar, you're either running it through a dishwasher or letting it air dry because you don't want to put a towel or something inside that could leave a residue, particularly if you have um, laundry detergent that could, um, you know, leave some kind of a residue on your containers. Um, and a, a pro tip for anyone who gets milk and notices that it is spoiling faster than it should be is to check the temperature of your fridge and also where you keep your milk in your fridge. A lot of people like to keep it on the door and that's actually the worst place to keep milk. You should put it in the back in the furthest, coldest place of your fridge just to sustain um, shelf life longer, whether you're getting it in bulk or from anywhere else. I just learned something new today about milk, yeah, even though I'm too. not a milk drinker, but that's something I'm <laughs> going to have to tell everyone now. Um, I have one last question for you. I know when people, you know, think about trying to shop either to do better for themselves, either eating organically or sustainably or doing good for the environment. Um, they sometimes, you know, assume that it's just a more costly endeavor. It's like, oh, I have to buy organic. It's going to cost me more money. If I want to buy something that's sustainable, it's going to cost me more money. But for me, when I'm bringing my own containers to shop, um, part of the reason why I do it is for bulk purchase on top of being green friendly. So I'm always assuming I'm saving a little bit of money. So to our listeners out there, like, is waste-free shopping a more cost-effective way of living as well? Yeah, so there's two parts to that answer. The first is if you are looking at purchasing things that will help you live more sustainably, there is often a higher upfront cost. So for example, uh, I have in, in my home, we have um, reusable coffee filters. And so they're more expensive to buy upfront. But I've used the same two coffee filters. I wash one and have the other one ready to go. They come in two packs. For three years. So the cost per use goes down every single time you use it. So it's definitely saved me personally a whole whack of money and waste because I no longer have those filters. I don't have that extra waste going out into the world. But but the financial savings is is readily there. I love Wonderful. that, Michelle. I mean, it's, it's actually the same mindset. It's why I do canning is... Uh, you know, that jar of pickles the first year I made it cost a lot of money, but I'm on to I've been using some of the same jars for like six, seven years. I should really look into how many times I can reuse those. But yeah, I mean, that cost per use, you definitely do end up saving money when you get into that mindset of spending more upfront and reusing things. Thank you so much for giving us some great tips for Earth Day. Where can people go to Unboxed? You can come to 1263 Dundas Street West. We're at the corner of Dundas and Dovercourt. And coming up after the break, Maroki, is there a restaurant you love so much that you would make a movie about it? You know, I think that's a loaded question, Andre, because there are so many great restaurants in Toronto. I would almost want to make a series. I think that's a great idea. But I guess for a starting point, we're about to talk to a director who did just that, made a fantastic short film that's going to be debuting shortly about one of Toronto's uh, classic restaurants. So stick around after the break. We're going to get to that interview. On 640 Toronto. Every time I go, I'm as excited as the first time I discovered it. Diners are where I feel the true magic of restaurants exists. The magic is palpable. It's a real thing. It's why I love restaurants. 
What you've just heard is a short clip from the upcoming movie Skyline. It's a very short independent documentary uh, about Queen West's oldest family diner. And Maroki, just before the break, you and I were talking about whether or not we had a restaurant that we loved enough to make a movie about. And right now we are joined by the director of this movie, JR. Thanks Hello. For- Hello. Thanks, for ha- thanks for having me. Yeah, we're super excited. I guess, uh, you know, maybe you're here to answer the question that Andre and I failed to answer before the break <laughs> is, you know, you're, you're making this documentary about Skyline Diner. What made you love it so much that you had to go and make a documentary about it? Uh, great question. And, um, and you know, to be honest, there's dozens and dozens of, of restaurants in Toronto that are worthy of, of having you know a film made about them for sure and uh and i actually watched a doc recently about uh the vesta the vesta lunch that some uh some humber students yes. made that was that was amazing uh that played at another festival recently but um yeah there's so many great spots and you know what's hilarious is that this this was all you know started uh from ivy ivy knight the, the writer producer mm-hmm. on this film uh, lives around the corner from Skyline, and so she was the one that really got the ball rolling and wanted to make uh, some. It actually started as, as more of a social media, you know, uh, revamp for them, trying to get give them some content to use because uh, restaurants don't spend money on publicity, at least small independent restaurants like a place like Skyline that's independently owned. It doesn't have, you know, a big restaurant group behind it you know that uh, spends thousands of dollars on marketing so they wanted to find a restaurant that they loved and wanted to give it some um some publicity and so that's really how it started and 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 maggie uh one of the owners uh got on board and and was like yeah come on come on in shoot some content and would love to to uh to have you guys talk about us and make some content and and that was it and What's funny about this doc that I don't think a lot of people know about, and I'll, I'll let you guys in on it, is that it, it didn't actually start as a doc. Oh. Um, it, it sort of just happened to turn into a documentary uh, after we shot all this footage. So we, we wanted to make a bunch of little social vignettes, these little stories and, and uh, you know, little videos, these little scenes. And what ended up happening was just magic. And you can't really script that, which I think is perfect for a documentary like this where you don't plan it. You know, we, we kind of just went in and got some amazing content. And I think it was maybe about a month later after we'd shot this footage, Ivy was home with COVID and had this this recollection of, of her her early experiences with with the change in ownership of the skyline because back in 2015, 2016, I believe uh, it closed down and no one knew if it was going to be closed for good. Um, Louis, the original owner, um, you know, had, had sold it eventually to, uh, to Judd and, and Maggie Roll, who are brother and sister and, and are co-own this restaurant. And so so I would just, you know, into her iPhone, recorded this, you know, 20 some odd minute rant about 
her 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 trepidation, her fears of of this diner changing, you know, her beloved Skyline Diner that she loves so much. And it it just kind of came together, you know, without much effort. And uh, and it just turned into this really cute story that was like a love letter to the diner. And it also is a bit more deep in, in how it talks about uh, social media and, you know, how your words have impact and... It, and how to just basically not not to be a dick on social media. Is I mean, I mean that's that's it though. Like I I love the starting point for this because I think if you're someone sitting in the car right now and you work for a company and you don't work for a small business, you know, if you work for Rogers, if you work for Loblaws, like these are companies that sink tons of money into marketing, into telling their stories, and it's everywhere. And when you run a small business. You know, you're really kind of left to the wolves to make sure you've got enough money to keep your business going, pay your employees, let alone have anything extra to sink into marketing. And like, it's just really cool to hear that, that, you know, the people, at least the new people who own this that let you bring your cameras in there, understand that you do have a bit of power to build your own platform. But it's also really cool for me to hear the entrepreneurial spirit between like you and Ivy as well to go in and shoot this content and have it turn into a movie. Now, in, in in terms of like the the subject matter itself, like one of my favorite parts of the, the trailer that we just heard at the top of this segment was Ivy talking about the magic of the diner. And you've talked about a change in ownership as well, which can often kill the magic in a place. What makes this place so magic that it has led you to create a documentary about it? Well, I don't yeah, I don't think it was necessarily the you know there's, there's tons of magic with with the skyline and and you know I think the documentary just really aimed to kind of capture um, more so Ivy's love of it um, not so much what makes it special because it, I think it's such a, a unique thing what what makes a place special for someone um, you know for me personally what makes the skyline special is is a the people the vibe you know when you go there and how you're how you're welcomed how you're treated the people that's that look after you and the people that cook your food and everything else um and then it's also just the thing you know, of the feeling of the place you know like what's amazing about the skyline is that they do it's it's kind of stuck in time so it has this super nostalgic vibe to it because it's from the 60s you know it's 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 like walking back in time into a more simpler time. You brought up this interesting point, and and I think it's something that we're sometimes seeing less of or thinking less of in Toronto as we see skyscrapers pop up every day and restaurants go in and out of business over over the years, especially, you know, I think we've seen that turnover happen faster than ever in the last three years. Um, there's very It's very rare these days to kind of walk into a, a place that's still kind of hold the same aesthetic the same food the same personality and that's what makes it famous right you brought up vespa mm -hmm. obviously skyline's one of it um do you like do you think that you know that places should kind of remain with its historical significance or do you think that sometimes places do need to change with the times like i know Lakeview in Toronto was also another beloved space and has been, you know, used as many film sets and it's actually undergoing renos. I have no idea what that mm -hmm. means. <laughs> mm -hmm. They haven't necessarily told us. They could be just cleaning up the space for all we know, or they could be transforming it completely. Do you think that these it's important that for some of these spaces to exist, or do you think that they might end up 
pulling pressure under the change of time or even just the society and the city we live in that is constantly changing and moving and um, I guess, quote unquote, like towards the future. Right. And I say that in quotes mm -hmm. because obviously not everyone believes in that. Yeah, I think I think it is. It comes down to whether it's being done for the right purpose. You know, um, what what they did at that skyline was amazing because they cleaned it up. You know, it obviously needed, you know, some new floors or, you know, a, a, a refinish, uh, you know, pull up some old rugs and, and things like that just to get some of the old the old nastiness out of the <laughs> out of the walls and everything else. But um, but it didn't lose its personality. And and I and I, you know, I think that's probably the most important thing is is retaining the character of, of a place, you know. Toronto is known for its, you know, facadism movement, um, where you know you keep you keep the front arches and and the all the the details of of the old buildings, and then you throw up a, a big glass box behind it, and and call it new again, and 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 that's great to a certain extent, but it's not it's it's definitely not the same place that it was. Well. You know, I could sit and probably keep listening to you talk about the food scene in Toronto for a much longer segment, but we are out of time on this. Uh, I, for one, love watching movies about food. Um, where and when can people see your love letter to the Skyline Diner? You can see it at uh, the TIFF Lightbox on uh, April 30th at 6.30. It'll be... Uh, screened in front of a feature film called uh, I'm Here for the Riot is another great looking uh, feature by um, uh, by another Canadian director. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us, JR, and sharing your love for the magical place that is the skyline. Thank you so much, guys. Coming up after the break, we are going to continue with the theme of Earth Day and tell you why you should be thinking about drinking wine from a can or a Tetra Pak. On 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm joined by Maroki Tong, Danny Longo of the Global Newsroom. I am Andre Prue. It is that time of the show where we take a look at what's going on in the world of beverage. And let me put a question to both of you. Uh, Danny, I'll let you answer first, but have you ever had wine in a can? I have had wine in a can. And um, are you asking what I thought of it? <laughs> because I was not a fan. I, I don't like my beer in a can. I, I prefer bottles. Interesting. It, I, I just think it tastes better. And Maroki, how about you? I have had wine in a can. I've also had wine uh, in a Tetra pack. And I've visited tasting rooms where they've served me wines that they would sell by the bottle, but they'll serve it to me from a bag. Um, and for those of you who don't know, bagged wine is essentially boxed wine because you put the bag in a box. Um, yep. If you buy them, if you've ever buy that bulk wine in a box, it's actually in a vacuum sealed bag. Um, just so that they have it for freshness uh, so that it can hold the wine longer. So um, I'm sure some people may have opinions about this, but this is why we're going to dig into canned wines and Tetra Pak wines for this segment of Tasting Together. You know, um, I know I've outed myself often as the resident snob out of the, the three of us, um, especially given the ridiculous cellar that I have in, in my basement. But 
Um, this might come as a surprise to you guys and the listeners. I'm a massive fan of wine in can as a format. And um, as well with bag and box, like bagged wine, uh, what you call bagged wines, Maroki. It's um, frankly just, I think, an issue with the selection that we've had at the LCBO, I think, on, t- on two different fronts. I think with canned wine, we're on the up and coming where I think the technology is still very new and I don't know if the market knows how to react to it yet. And with uh, bag and box, like I'll be blunt. I think the products that the LCBO has been selling, you know, at least since I've moved in, lived in Ontario has been subpar compared to bag and box wines that you can find elsewhere in the world. I'm all for, um, you know, saving the environment and the, the box wine thing, you know, truth be told my my mother used to buy box wine occasionally just because of the quantity and you know it was a saving <laughs> money saving thing you know she would often just have a glass with dinner um and you know i think the bag i don't have a problem with that for me the problem i have with cans in general is i can taste the aluminum if that makes sense oh that is interesting because the the reason i like canned wine is i find that it doesn't affect the taste of the wine what about you maroki um so i know for sure that canned wines um like beer actually have an expiry date right and i think part of it may have to do with one the cans ability to actually preserve the product and two i think there is a chance that over time the product may like the can may leave a tinny taste um, if it's because it's just simply not as inert as glass. But as long as you're drinking the product fresh, I have never had an issue tasting tinniness in a canned product. So that may see. And and, and I shouldn't call you out here, Danny, but I, now I'm beginning to wonder, like, were the wines or beers you drank past its prime? There's a chance. I mean, especially um, at home with beer, sometimes I'll buy a case and, you know, it can sit there for months, right? Mm. And then by the time I get around to having a can, you know, I'll put it in the fridge and, you know, by the time I try it, it tastes different, you know, as opposed to I find with bottles, I know exactly what I'm going to get with bottles. Same with wine. And I have had, uh, to be fair, with uh, the canned wine that I have had, I didn't really notice the taste. Um, it's just maybe it's just a, you know, a reaction that I have in general to cans uh-huh. that I'm kind of opposed to. Yeah. Um, but because I, I think with the the cans, I know, like going to microbreweries, that it's really easy for them to produce their own cans, and I, I would imagine that the same would be for uh, for for wineries. Yeah, so it's it's actually something that happened, um, especially during the pandemic when I was talking to different winery partners down in Niagara. And there's a, a growing handful of people who are making wines in cans. Uh, Between the Lines, it's a winery in Niagara on the lake. Uh, we're one of the first and definitely championed it. Rockway Vineyards are another one that do wine in a can. And anyone I'm, I'm missing, Maroki? Malavoir is doing their ladybug in a can. And actually, Danny, I think a good experiment for you too is... Um, some of these wineries are doing a can format and a bottle format, so I would almost like buy maybe the can and the bottle and taste side by side and see whether you do it's, notice a difference. Because maybe you just have sensitive taste buds, right? Like I wouldn't put it past you to have that. Well, too. and I think it's it's curious that Malivar is putting Ladybug in a can because that is a premium rosé, like that is a vintage is essential, but it's also not a, a particularly cheap wine. 
Um, when I before I was going to rattle off the list because I wanted to make sure that I in- included everyone during the pandemic, a lot of wineries were really championing wine in a can because of supply chain issues. And when I was talking to people, wine in a can is lightweight, so it's easier to ship. Um, it's less expensive to ship. A lot of the glass bottles that are used in Niagara have to come in overseas, largely from China. Uh, we have our own supply chain of aluminum in Canada. So we're able to domestically produce the the product and it's recyclable. So there's a lot of ups for where cans come from. But I, I do think there is going to be a slow uptake on the market. Thinking about how even now in 2023, I'll get the odd person who says that, you know, a wine sealed in a screw cap is an inferior product where if you look at countries like Australia, you'll find icon wines going for hundreds of dollars you know, pleasantly sealed under a screw cap. You talked about it being cheaper, more lightweight, but, you know, uh, in honor of Earth Day, like the environmental impact on it as well. If you think about something that is a little more durable, aluminum being more durable to ship as well, on top of being lighter than glass, because it's more durable, you don't need a lot of protective packaging for Mm -hmm. it as well. So that actually reduces the amount of waste from package as well. And like, I think the other reason why for uptake, for the uptick of canned wines or Tetra Pak wines during the pandemic and hopefully afterwards is people have started recognizing its functionality for you know, drinking wine outdoors, taking mm. it camping, right. taking it on a hike. So it's it's a much more useful product and it's often a single serving size. So you don't have to think about opening something and now you absolutely must consume the whole thing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, what about, I, I have been to some wineries or cideries where they have take-home growlers or same with uh, breweries as well. Um, now I had a problem with, never remembering where I got them from yeah. and then not being able to take them back. And I actually tried to take them back to the beer store. Um, they have the recycling program and they didn't give me anything for it, but they said, we'll take it. Or, you know, it's either, you know, they take it or I just put it in the recycling bin. But it's, I guess, something to think about like, if you want to. Oh, I'm like, with you. I'm, the environment. I'm with you on that, Danny. Like, I liked the idea of the growler program. And I know the LCBO, like prior to the pandemic, had started to roll that out in a handful of, of stores. You know, it was a nice way to get, you know, fresh draft beer at home over a couple of days. But it's also the way that I drink. And I'm, I'm sure like the way that all three of us are drinking is especially with this radio show, we're not drinking the same thing so on the regular that we have the opportunity to build that loyalty where it's just like, oh, you know what? I'm going to hit up my local on the way home, get a fresh growler with the two, three pints in it and enjoy that over the weekend. Like I'm looking to drink new and more interesting stuff. So, you know, having the the single serving or even even the Tetra Pak being recyclable as well. Like it's just, I don't know. It's, it's curious to see how... Um, these alternative packaging and, and how the alternative packaging industry in the beverage world is, I think, a lot more dynamic than people realize because of how slow um, the public perception is to change their minds on innovations in packaging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think what I would love to see, like, I love my cans, but I think it would be cool to see more wine in a bag. Like, I've started seeing a few wineries um, kind of create these little baggies with a handle with a spigot mm-hmm. so you can sort of, you know, mm. keeps the wine sealed. And I think um, one thing I should mention to our listeners is 
you know, wine in the bag. One of the, the reason why I said at the beginning, one winery won't serve me samples out of a bag is because it keeps it in a vacuum seal and yeah. therefore the wine will stay, um, will stay fresh a lot longer than per se opening a bottle where obviously oxidation will occur. Yeah. Weeks, so and weeks versus a, days. Yeah. So now I'm seeing some, you know, wine bags for like people that like, you know, they can take to picnics or to camping. So similar in the, in the can format, just, you know, perhaps a little bit larger in volume. And I guess, I don't know. I think it's kind of cute. You carry it around like a little purse. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm hoping that if you've tuned into this segment, that maybe next time you head to the LCBO or your local winery and you've been hesitant to try bag in box or bagged wine or wine in a can, you can do your part for the environment and try something new. Mm-hmm. And you, one should always do their part for the environment, whether it is just on Earth Day today or year-round endeavor. That's my little soapbox for the end of the segment on Tasting Together. Thanks for joining us again, Danny. Thank you. And for the rest of you, make sure you set your alarms for every Saturday at 5 p.m. to join us for all the good eats and drinks in the GTA and beyond. This has been Tasting Together <laughs> on 640 Toronto. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.